It's Monday, September 6th. It is uh, better known as Labor Day. Have, hope you're all having a good three-day weekend if you're fortunate enough to get that. Otherwise, um, enjoy your regular-ass Monday. This is LA Podcast. I'm Scott Frazier here with Matt Tinoco and Alyssa Walker, who is, as we're recording this, celebrating a birthday. Happy birthday. How are you both doing? Thanks, Scott. I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here, and I'm glad that my birthday gift for Alyssa, a vintage Los Angeles Times midwinter edition, was a hit. And I'm glad that... They made these publications. My birthday gift, a complete renovation of the house next door, (laughs) which will probably be audible at some point during this episode, is also a big hit. Uh, (laughs) Can't thank you enough for that, Scott. I really cannot. (laughs) It's somehow September already. Um, It's uh, the the summer is in in people's minds. The summer is over, even though it is actually kind of just getting started in terms of um, in terms of weather in Los Angeles. By the time you hear this, it's definitely going to be hot again. I'm sorry. We had a nice couple of days. We had a good run of of uh, marine layer. Really did well. Hurricane remnants, not marine layer. Oh, it was Hurricane Remnant. Hurricane yeah. Nora, not Ida. Okay. Nora that went up, um, like hit Puerto Vallarta. That's good. That would have scarred me if it was Ida, which is the name of my daughter. Um, and and she had that name first, I will just I, say. I was thinking about it. I think maybe the Tropical Depression was like actually forming like the day they that also- gave birth. <laughs> okay. So it could be, we have to go look at it. They also give, they like select the names way in advance, right? Yeah. So you knew it was coming. I could have known it was coming. Um, Anyway, this is LA Podcast. As I said, you're listening to episode 190, Life in the Bass Lane. Sure. (laughs) Do it. (laughs) Uh, Surely make you lose your mind. We are launching our first ever, this is huge news for us, our first ever member drive because it is September we are calling it New Member September. This is our uh, this is our big effort to try and fund a lot of the projects that we have planned for the upcoming year. You are, if you're already a member of the Sepulveda Pass, thank you so much. You are going to be getting um, some additional perks on top of what um, well on top of what we've already been doing for Patreon members. We're shuffling things around, so you will see some changes happening there. In the coming days, if you're not already a Sepulveda Pass member, please take a minute to check out thelapod.com uh, slash support us or patreon.com slash lapodcast. Those are the two locations where you can access our donations page. We are going to be opening up our additional content to all listeners. All three of us sort of agree that we want to have Uh, the show available for everyone, but we are going to be introducing brand new things, including merchandise, which is something uh, that folks have been asking us for for a long time. We're happy to say that we have uh, t-shirts on the way. We are looking at fanny packs. We're adding uh, bandanas for existing subscribers as a way to say thank you for your long-term support. Let's, um, Let's see what we can get done. We're very excited and more will come in the the upcoming days. Check out our Twitter at the LA pod 
for additional updates on new member September and all of the benefits that we're looking to bring to you, our listeners. And then even if you can't like support us immediately with a, a money donation, other things that really, really help is just getting the LA podcast name out there. So you listen to the show because you, you know, care about the things that we talk about, which are like housing, transportation, unsheltered homelessness, just the politics of Southern California. And if you know a couple other people who are also interested in that sort of stuff, please just recommend that they listen to LA Podcasts. So part, like, it's always best to like, you know, when you think about like trust in news, right? Like you trust recommendations from your friends. So really... I'm asking you to think really hard about a couple people in your life who you think would value this podcast and and the sort of you know editorial news and, and stuff that we are providing here, um, and tell them to listen to us. That's that's the that's really like that will make so much of a difference because we can we can ask the people who listen to the show for our support over and over and over again. But there's lots of other people out there who will absolutely like LA Podcast, but who just haven't heard us before. And it's really, really key because we want to, you know, have, we want to grow the community of, we're at thousands of listeners now, right? We would love that to be tens of thousands of listeners. That's kind of where I am right now, which is uh, to come. So we'll be uh, giving you continual updates on that, including what uh, special events and prizes, perks, et cetera, that we will have for uh, subscribers. We are, of course, completely independent, no commercials, no advertisement, and we do really appreciate the support of everyone who's joined so far. Before we get into the news of the week, let's do some LA stories. Alyssa, do you want to go first? I mean, I don't want to talk about it, but I will. So speaking of Ida, um, I'm sure everyone has uh, been following with great interest um, what happened and then really the entire Eastern seaboard um, where I think three or four times as many people have been killed by Ida than were killed in the Gulf Coast um, due to mostly flash flooding and some tornadoes that came on very quickly, according to the government leaders, but if you look at the forecasts that predicted the flooding, um, the flash flooding, it was very obvious that something uh, very dramatic was about to occur. And there's been a big question about, once again, this question of emergency alerts and how do people get the information? Um, there was actually like two conflicting emergency alerts. You got one that said, uh, hurricane, I mean, what one that said tornado, take cover, go to a basement. And then mm. six minutes later, flash flooding, get to higher Seek ground. Higher ground. So people were really confused about what was happening in their city and didn't really know what to do. And it was the, it was the first ever flash flood emergency issued for the city of New York. The first ever, yeah. which is like, I don't think people really understand. They understand like a storm surge, like that's the threat that's been like drilled into people's heads. But um, a lot of people said they did not know what, what to do or where to go. And a lot of people live in basement apartments and that's where a lot of people were killed, like literally trapped in their apartments because the floodwaters were pushing the door shut and they could not get out of their homes. This just made me think a lot, again, about, you know, writing about uh, evacuations, the car dependency problem, which we've talked about before when it comes to wildfires and, and, and how do you get people to safety or how they're supposed to know where they're supposed to go. But it reminded me again that um, one of the most devastating uh, disasters that we've had in California was not an earthquake. It was 
the mega flood mm-hmm. of the 1800s, like 1860. 1861 to 62. Oh, I was so, Matt knows all the dates and I'm always like, <laughs> I bet I'll know this date. Yes, it was so long that it spanned multiple years. The winter. Uh, it was in the winter, yeah. yeah. And it turned the Central Valley into a lake essentially for, you know, a while. A while. Like it, Sac- it, Sacramento was underwater. Yeah, completely. completely underwater. And there was, they had to move the capital to, to San Francisco for a while to continue the government um, of California, which was completely, the, the economy was completely devastated by this. Think of all the crops, you know, all the, you know, commerce that we had chugging through the Central Valley. Anyway, it's just a reminder Think about these things. Look at your flood risk. Pay attention to what neighborhoods are named. Things like heights. That would be a place <laughs> that you would want to go. If they, you know, really think about mudslides and um, debris flow from recent fires, things like that. But um, I, I don't think this stuff is well communicated to uh, our city either. Um, we just have earthquake drilled into our head, and it's mm-hmm. a very different type of emergency. So. Like, I guess just don't assume that the flood control infrastructure nearby your house uh, is like equipped yeah. for a major, like it's it's going to do fine for like most rain, but like that's the whole thing with like what just happened in, I guess the East Coast is that this was not just most rain, this was like four inches an hour. Yeah, and that and that's just way too yeah, much no, for it to Nothing's prepared absorb. for it. Yeah. yeah, and they just said they were like, yeah, the the the, the thing I wrote about that just absolutely blew my mind was that the on-ramp to the Brooklyn Bridge, the approach to the Brooklyn Bridge was flooded. Yeah. Basically like a a canal. Of, yeah. And that water was just being gathered on the on-ramp, you know, that's how that's how bad it was. And it wasn't just it wasn't just there either. It was you know we were seeing images of uh, road like not just road but even highway flooding across the country, kind of like across the Northeast. So oh, Philadelphia, from, like yeah. a full on river. A river. It looks uh, like a river. Still, yeah, on on top of a highway. It is remarkable. My LA story for this week is uh, related to the Dodgers, who have just retaken the lead in the National League West. Good for them. Very happy. Uh, I was <laughs> I was walking around in my neighborhood in Silver Silver Lake Echo Park border area. Uh, with my baby doing a sort of evening walk, getting her some much-needed time out of the house so she can actually fall asleep. Um, one of the funny things about having a baby is they kind of just like love loud noise, which is great because going out into our neighborhood, uh, one of the nights last night that the Dodgers were playing, my neighbors were having a big, old-fashioned L.A. street fight. And it was, you know, exactly Oof. the background noise that, uh, exactly the background noise that my daughter needed to fall asleep quite soundly. Um, these are these are people who live in my neighborhood. They're they're very nice. They um, got together to watch the Dodgers game with a lot of liquor and um, a, a lot of family present. And by the time that we were walking around the our block. They were out in their yard, screaming at uh, you know their their cousins, and like they had other family members like pulling them off of each other. It was a whole scene. Just a reminder that um, 
summer. This is summer. It's like this is what happens in summer. People get it gets hot. It doesn't cool down. People get uh, together with friends and family and then get drunk and pissed <laughs> off at each other. And it was just so fun. I mean, it was uh, nobody was hurt. Uh, fortunately, nobody was hurt. No uh, police were called or anything like that. But it was a kind of a, a reminder because I have, as a result of um, being friends with Alyssa, who's a very bad influence on me, downloaded Citizen onto my phone. <laughs> and so I've been getting all these push alerts for things like... Um, Do not blame me for your Citizen. Okay, well... Did you I, get to live stream? Did I? Yeah. Or, did, did I? You, I'm not addicted. How much addicted. did you get paid? I just have How the, much did Citizen pay you? I did not to live stream. <laughs> <laughs> I could have. Scott's new game. Um, but yeah, I just get all the push notifications that are like, people are out, out in their yard and their voices are raised. And it's just sort of like... Um, You're like, I'm on my way. And it was just kind of a reminder to me, like, yeah, like <laughs> just people are out there uh, living their lives in public and it is sometimes messy. Um, and as long as the Dodgers keep winning... Man, people are going to continue to be out in their yards getting drunk. Going to be, going to be rough. <laughs> so, I mean, okay, well, that, they'll do that if if the Dodgers lose too. But in this case, it was a convenient excuse. Matt, what is your LA story for the week? It's just a short one. It's that I was having a conversation with my partner, and she reminded me of the existence of Eric Garcetti, who, <laughs> who, yeah, if who? you remember, he's the, he's still the mayor. Oh. I don't know if you guys knew that, but Garcetti... He's still out there. He's still there. He's still doing mm-hmm. stuff. Although when I went to go check his schedule, because I was like, what is the mayor of Los Angeles up to right now? Uh, he traveled out of town again. He was out, actually out of mm-hmm. state. And the and the at first it was from Monday afternoon until Friday of last week that Eric Garcetti was not in town. But then late in the week, that was that Friday become, actually, it's going to be Saturday. He's, he's going to come back on Saturday now. So... Mm-hmm. So I guess it was just, you know, he just wasn't here. R&R. Just a little bit of R&R. Out of state. But also then, like, when you look at the public schedule, or at least what is made public to me, um, is that he has no public events in state. No public event. The the language is like, he doesn't have any public events here, which makes me wonder, Hmm. where are the public events? Because they're not here, and he's Hmm. somewhere else, but I don't know where they are. So this makes me wonder if there's... I mean, I just don't know. I don't know, man. Where's Where's Eric? I guess if this would be a good time to add a follow-up to our Where's John Lee question of last week that he was spotted. Yes. John Lee's back. John Lee's back. back. Maskless at a Mexican restaurant, number one. <laughs> oh, yeah, with a huge group <laughs> with of... With a huge group of mostly older women. Just the Northwest Valley. The Northwest Valley. Right. He yeah. has um, his, his uh, all or primarily female fan club, which I can't remember what it's called. Oh, like really? Murderers Row. Or they what. meet regularly in this Mexican they're not like a form. It's, it's like there was like a um, whatever uh, discussion about this. Like they're just like people who go on social media and are very defensive of John Lee. And he his office does have communication with them. I imagine that some of those... Oh, so they knew where he was pic- yeah. this whole time. Yeah, well, he's not explaining it to us in retrospect either. Did yeah. anyone like check that photo? It could have been from years ago because only could have one been. person had a mask on. Right, somebody, and I believe it was Matt, said that we needed proof of life, yeah. right? We need a we need a dated, <laughs> a, a dated newspaper in the picture. Um, he, he was spotted in council. That's the thing. He returned to public physically meetings. Physically in the building? He was, I, I saw him in the frame Mm, and his vote was recorded. Was it like a little glitchy? Like he was like... 
Yeah, so Hi, yeah, if it was like I'm, a hologram. Join <laughs> council member John Lee. Join the Sepulveda Pass. Give us a couple of dollars a month. For just $3 a month, we can retain an audio-visual expert, somebody who can figure out whether or not images and, vo- and vocals have been tampered with so that we know that no one's deep-faking John Lee's presence in council. <laughs> His office has never gone back to me, though. Despite multiple, uh, I mean, I, I didn't re-up it after I saw him in council, but like still wondering where he was. Like, mm. I don't know. I haven't checked his Facebook page though, so maybe that's, I should. We should ask if he has any comments about Villanueva's. Uh, oh, <laughs> has yeah. he returned Put Alex down. Villanueva's returned, phone That's call? our only question we have right now. What, yes. what did you think of Alex Villanueva's pointed put down of you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, John Lee is back. The, the council returns to uh, full strength, but let us know if you notice anyone else disappearing. That's it for LA stories this week. Let's get into the news, shall we? We have some headlines we want to share with you, starting with the continued saga of Los Angeles, city of Los Angeles's treatment of unhoused people living on the streets. There are a number of court cases uh, that are relevant to issues of enforcement against unhoused populations, one that is proceeding and has had uh, a substantial new headline come out this past week is Garcia versus the city of Los Angeles, which looks at enforcement of the city's municipal code 5611. Matt, can you walk us through what happened with Garcia versus Los Angeles this week? Yeah. So just for background on Garcia v. LA, it was a case that was filed a couple of years ago pertaining to a section of LA city code 5611. And that is the city's uh, municipal code section that pertains specifically to the storage of personal property on the public right-of-way. And the specific provisions that the Garcia case was uh, alleging were unconstitutional, saying that the city's violating the 4th and 14th constitutional amendments by enforcing, uh, were the provision of uh, the city can confiscate bulky items without prior notice and that a person who, then there's no way to contest that. So... The city defines a bulky item in its current code as anything that's not a uh, like a wheelchair, a bicycle, or a tent that cannot fit into a 60-gallon container, that cannot fit into what is a black city garbage can. That is a 60-gallon container. And, and the argument was just that by, by, by confiscating things without any room for somebody to contest the process, the city was not only violating the Fourth Amendment, which says no person shall be free from uh, un- uh, unreasonable searches or seizures of property, but also the due process claim, because there was no way to, for anybody to intervene and actually say, hey, wait a second, that item that doesn't fit into that particular garbage can is... Uh, it shouldn't be seized. There's no there's no way to contest that. And then also 5611 code as written right now also makes it a misdemeanor for somebody to say intervene in the process when their own personal property is getting confiscated. So that's like if a sanitation, the way it works in practice is a sanitation worker or a police officer out on the street will say, okay, we're going to confiscate this property right now. Intervening in that process, like going to try and touch your property or reclaim it and establish like physical contact, becomes effectively, it can be prosecuted as a misdemeanor under code right now. This was the basis of the lawsuit, which uh, more or less was, uh, it was the filed on behalf of a number of unhoused plaintiffs from around the city of Los Angeles who have lost personal property in the city's care and care plus and previous iterations of those sweeps. And what just happened was, once again, 
a federal judge, in this case now a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, panel of three judges, said, yeah, uh, the city's conduct in uh, seizing personal property without prior notice and without any room for uh, somebody to contest that uh, is, yes, it is a violation of the Fourth uh, Amendment of the United States Constitution. That's the headline. Uh, so what can happen now is the city can once again appeal. This is this is consistent with previous rulings on this issue. Right, and there was a preliminary injunction that had already been enforced. So the bulky items provision in 5611 had actually stopped being enforced uh, actually, I think, over a year ago at this point um, because it was found that it, it violated the Fourth Amendment. Now that has been upheld at a higher level, like you were saying, Matt, that the city can, is there any indication that the city will try to appeal again? I mean, I'm sure, I mean, I don't know. I can't, there's not just yet. There hasn't been a public statement just yet. It's a, we're in the reviewing stages of that, but uh, procedurally the city could appeal again, not to a Ninth Circuit Appeals panel, but to the full Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which would require, I think it's a nine judge panel to come and weigh in on the issue. And then the only step after that would be the SCOTUS Supreme Court. But the, I mean, the the superstructure here is that like there there's an entire family of rulings that deals directly with the treatment of more often than not the city of Los Angeles, uh, the city of Los Angeles's homeless population by the city itself, and that superstructure has broadly found that uh, what the city of LA does in respect to its unhoused residents is uh, violative of a variety of constitutional rights. Flagrantly unconstitutional over and over and over again. And it makes me think of something that Pete White, the executive director of LA Can, said, uh, I believe it was, and this was a couple of years ago, at the launch of the Services Not Sweep Coalition, there was a press conference, which is just effectively that uh, the city does something. We, we speaking as, as Pete for LA Can, we sue the city. A judge says it's unconstitutional. They keep doing it. We sue again. And the entire process repeats over and over and over again. And here we are. And this is something that I tied to, I think, my greater concerns um, about the 311 reporting process that we, the city really relies on for bulky item pickup and as well as the reporting of homeless encampments. So hopefully you've subscribed to our newsletter and uh, you got to read that. Otherwise, you can check it out. We'll post it on Twitter and social media. The next story that we want to talk about is the mayoral race here in Los Angeles. As Matt mentioned, we do still technically have a mayor, Eric Garcetti, um, but it's not entirely clear to us what he's doing or whether or not he is even in the city of Los Angeles for more than a few minutes at a time. More attention is shifting to the upcoming race, which will be next year. We have two prominent uh, members of the city's political class who have already joined the race. Another, Mark Ridley Thomas, has said that he will not be running. But there has been a lot of discussion as to whether or not Mike Fewer, the city attorney, and Joe Buscaino, council member for the 15th district, will have any other high-profile competition. Now speculation is heating up that among the other challengers might be congressperson Karen Bass, who is an extremely high-profile member of the United States House of Representatives um, and was actually considered to be a leading candidate to join the United States Senate when Kamala Harris departed for, uh, um, for the Joe Biden administration. 
However, now it seems that Karen Bass has turned her attention to the mayoral race and is making, I mean, the, the, there has been a real concerted PR push is the headline in the, in the past couple of days, indicating that Bass has, with increasing uh, focus, begun to turn her attention to the possibility of a run for mayor. And I will also say that that has been received quite well by at least... Uh, a, a number of the more progressive office holders and uh, political act- activists throughout Los Angeles um, who are sort of looking at the field and not seeing any standard bear that they might uh, support. Karen Bass has been part of the Congressional Black Caucus, of course, for a long time. Before that, though, she was a prominent local activist in Los Angeles. Um, actually organizing and uh, getting off the ground the community coalition of of South Los Angeles. So uh, lots of history in LA and um, and certainly would be a formidable uh, contender should she decide to run. It's also worth noting that when we uh, when we talk about this, it's also worth noting that there is an interesting timeline of events that seems to be unfolding here in relation to uh, DreamWorks head Jeffrey Katzenberg, um, who met, we know that he met with a variety of council members, including council member Mark Ridley Thomas of the 10th district, who um, who then subsequently announced that he would not be running for mayor as he had been expected to do. Uh, it turns out that Katzenberg, according to LA Times reporting, has been intimating to other wealthy potential donors uh, that he supports a bass run if she does decide to get into the race. So um, there's an interesting nexus of sort of backdoor uh, communications that appears to be happening outside of the public view. We'll definitely be keeping an eye on that. In the meantime, um, the the mayoral race continues to, to heat up and we will uh, keep you apprised of all of the updates that are coming out of that space. Just the one thing I want to add is that the in in the current mayoral race, the primary is in June of 2022, which is nine months away from right now, which is not that far away at all. And the only two candidates who have raised as any really real amount of money are Joe Buscaino, council member for the 15th district uh, of the LA of LA city of Los Angeles city, and then the city attorney Mike Fear. They've both raised somewhere between seven and nine hundred thousand dollars, and other than them, no one else has. No one else comes even close. Mm. So, what about Rick Caruso? He's just gonna Caru- and that, that's he like, hasn't announced if he is. I know, but I'm saying he'll just like mortgage, like mortgage the, the Grove. Yeah. <laughs> well, that I mean that is a good point though. Rick Caruso, um, the the real estate developer, has been looking at a uh, has been looking at a mayoral run as well. I think that what we're seeing right now is a lot of people who have the ability to raise a lot of money in a hurry in the event that they should decide to run for mayor, are holding off on declaring. I, I think that everyone is kind of just waiting to see how the field shakes out. And none of these candidates are, I mean, with the exception of, of Fewer and Buscaino, who are firmly, they have both feet firmly in the LA local politics world anyway, um, maybe some of the other potential candidates are viewing this as uh, more of a wait and see whether or not there's a big enough name that would clear the field, so to speak. Um, but it is kind of like you're saying, Matt, nine months away. It is kind of interesting at this point. We don't have more 
declared interest when there is so much shadow boxing for donor support that we are aware of going on. Next, we want to talk about a what will, I think, continue to be a story throughout the next several months, which is the impacts of our fires during fire season on the forest lands surrounding Los Angeles. Alyssa, what is happening? What's on fire? What's on fire? Our our weekly segment, what's on fire? (laughs) Um, This was, I was surprised this wasn't better, bigger news. Like to me, this was huge, like beyond unprecedented. Our our segment could be called, hey, where's the fire buddy? (laughs) (laughs) Where's the fire? So earlier this week, we had, you know, you, I always look at those like Cal Fire charts of the largest fires in California history. And it's like the billboard, Casey Kasem, count them down because it changes Uh every week and you watch these brand new fires like ascend with stunning speed Uh um, to the top of the charts. And so (laughs) now we have, um, we had the Dixie Fire earlier this summer, which was the first fire to cross the Sierra Crest. So it basically went over the entire mountain range. It went up to 10,000 feet in elevation. Uh These are places that were not supposed to burn, like the scientists didn't think could burn, mostly because they usually have snow on them in the summertime, throughout the summertime. And also because there's just not a lot of vegetation up there. It's above the tree line in many cases. Um, Dixie Fire burned over the top. That was the biggest one. Now we have the Calder Fire, which um, you probably saw stories about that um, coming close to um, Tahoe, south, approaching from the south of Tahoe. There were um, the snowmaking equipment was brought out at Sierra Tahoe and Heavenly, and I think Kirkwood. Um, there were um, uh, the firefighters. The snowmaking equipment snow- was brought out for to fight the fires. They were using them as like shooting- mist cannons. Oh my, yeah, they're shooting fake. Yeah, snow. they have these like. Well, I mean, it's not frozen, but they use. They just they shoot like you know, super powered. Um, Is it water? Water. Yeah. It's, well, <laughs> who knows? Yeah, it's like that fake snow they have at like the Disneyland. If it's, if it's <laughs> no. real snow. <laughs> Then it's real water, right? right? It's real. <laughs> it's, it's, it's real snow. water. It's just like a you know a super powered gun of water, um, but they were using it to protect some of the structures, which was fascinating and horrifying. Right. And then um, yeah, the the firefighters were like going up on the chairlifts to like survey where the fire. All very you know apocalyptic and um, and horrible. But um, kind now, of genius though. But, but yeah, you have to just really admire. I was just you know just so impressed. Um, and the Calder Fire is now uh, the second fire in history to again cross the Sierra Crest. So we have these fires getting higher, wow. bigger. Yeah. So the the Forest Service decided to close all national forest land in the state of California for two weeks. This started on Tuesday, um, so it'll go through the seventeenth. And this was just like. I mean, I might, I was just reading this story and been like, when has this ever happened? Actually during COVID. <laughs> Last year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh. But after um, the fact. But yeah. Um, but it was, it, it was, during COVID, they were closing a lot of recreation. So I guess we're just like in a, a time of closures where we close things. But um, yeah, a lot of these places get closed after there's a major fire after, and now we're kind of doing it preemptively. But I don't think they're going to open a lot of places back up on the 17th. I can't imagine like suddenly they'll be like, oh, great. It's, it's like the mm-hmm. it's like the original COVID lockdown, two weeks, and then they'll keep extending it because what starts fires are people. And a very good example of that is last year's Bobcat fire down here in Southern California, which was started by, everyone remember? Gender reveal. I can't forget yeah. it. How, how could you? Did we ever know I did not, the gender? Of I the, did not remember, but I just took a guess. 
I mean, the, nine the out of ten fires, <laughs> I think, are caused by this. But um, so this this is I, I just think this is like huge news. And I think a lot of people don't know about it and are probably heading out, <laughs> headed out over the Labor Day weekend to go, you know, to their favorite hiking spot. Uh-huh. And the to date go, will be closed. To go do a little arson. <laughs> to, go, to go to have their gender reveal party in the, in the middle of in the, the great American West. box. Yeah. Who doesn't <laughs> want to do that on Labor Day? Thinking back to last year, because there was a statewide forest service closure last year after, after like later on, after mm-hmm, the Bobcat mm-hmm. fire happened, after all the other fires around the state happened. And I'm trying to remember when they lifted it. I think it was towards the end of October um, and then into November when restrictions were finally removed completely. Um, just in terms of like right now, right. Yeah, it's a closure, I think, to keep people out of dry areas on Labor Day. Because right. also remember last year in the Sierra, they had to, I think it was in Sierra National Forest, they had to airlift a bunch of people out on Labor right. Day because yeah. they were trapped, like they the, the roads were cut off. So it was yeah. like there was a military airlift operation to get hundreds of people out from a lake near uh, in the Sierra That's National right. Forest. That's right. Shaver um, Lake, right? Was it? Yeah, Shaver I don't Lake? know if yeah. it was around Shaver Lake. Yeah. I don't know if it was Shaver Lake, but yeah. But that, but that's, but yeah, but that's where the, I think that was what prompted the closure last year. Yeah. But yeah, here it's like it's like a turning your power off before the winds start. Type, It'll uh, you know, probably we'll, we'll be do that too. <laughs> longer than it's definitely nine seventeen. I know, I know. So. <laughs> Let's talk about our final headline for this week, which is all about the Beverly Hills Police Department, uh, famous for being you know, the the sort of concierge law enforcement for a very small, wealthy city, famous for being the subject of the film's Beverly Hills Cop, uh, and now getting some attention for something else, which is a lot of uh, high-level staffers leaving in the wake of a lawsuit that accuses the police department of utilizing its Safe Streets program to target black visitors to the city of Beverly Hills. The lawsuit claims, as a matter of fact, that 99% of the arrests or citations made in this program were given to black people. And, uh, and as I said, there have been some resignations in the Beverly Hills Police Department already as a result of this. This is a big story that is now unfolding. Matt, what are the details that we have so far? You know, technically, if we want to go there, it's more than 99%. It was, uh, in the lawsuit at least, it's claiming that of the 106 people arrested uh, and booked by the Beverly Hills Police Department between March of 2020 and July of 2021 through this task force, um, 105 of them were people who would ID as black. So wow. there's one person who apparently also was a dark-skinned Latino. That's what the that's what the lawsuit alleges, at least. But yeah, this is basically just a. It's Beverly Hills has a or had a task force that um, was specifically cruising around looking for black people to harass in its like trendy shopping centers. So the lawsuit itself names a or uh, has it was brought by a, a couple who were visiting from Philadelphia who were riding a scooter uh, on the sidewalk, and then Beverly Hills Police Department claims that they had been already warned against doing that earlier in the day. And then that upon arrest for, again, riding a scooter on the sidewalk, um, that they were resisting arrest. So for for riding a scooter on the sidewalk, two, two visitors from Philadelphia who were black in Beverly Hills 
uh, spent the night in jail and then were released. And then there were never any charges pressed whatsoever because obviously you can't press charges in a situation like that. It's completely fabricated. There was another gentleman who was a Versace executive and a designer who was arrested outside of the Versace store uh, because for, for, again, fabricated reasons. And that's the entire claim of the lawsuit. It's a class action lawsuit, which is basically saying anybody who was black and arrested, arrested in Beverly Hills between March of 2020 and July of 2021 is a member of this class because clearly they were just, it, it's not even, there's no question um, that they were just targeting black people who were on the street in Beverly Hills. And that's... I mean, it's like, what, what are the... the, the if you are going to juice your program in such a way that you're just trying to clear uh, people with dark skin, black people out of your city, um, it would probably behoove you not to to actually arrest 100% people with dark skin because it just, what it, there's no deniability really. Like there's just no credibility that you could uh, actually enforce these in a straightforward way and every single person happens to be black. That's, um, uh, it's just ridiculous. I, it did remind me of, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say the, the captain of the, the captain who led the task force quit in May when the, the class action lawsuit is the second in a piece of legal documents documenting this. There was a, uh, an initial complaint filed back in May and that captain quit. Uh, back in May, the captain who apparently engineered the uh, Safe Street Operation Safe Street Task Force was its name. name. Yeah, and then actually, and then this week, the day after the lawsuit hit the court, Beverly Hills Police Department's assistive, assistant chief also resigned, and they're not saying why, but I bet we can guess why. Yeah, I mean, behind the scenes, you can imagine what's happening here. I mean, even the the name of the the program Operation Safe Street is is interesting because it. Definitely leads one to question, like for whom these streets are are to be made safe. Uh, it, Beverly Hills is not a city with a significant black population. It, it reminds me, and and I actually made some mention of this on Twitter of last summer when we had the uh, the uprisings in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Uh, that the protests that we saw in Los Angeles, which were intentionally in upper scale neighborhoods and um, and including in Beverly Hills, we had a lot of curfews put in place. Beverly Hills put in a particularly stringent one intended to keep people out of the city. Um, and then Beverly Hills became one of the few places where charges were actually pressed against protesters and uh, and curfew violators. The the thing that was interesting to me at the time, and I revisited it in the wake of this week's news, was the fact that the the police department, in defense of its recommendation to press charges, um, actually said the following. I'll, I'll quote from their report. It should be noted that Beverly Hills is a multicultural and multi-ethnic city. However, a large percentage of its population is comprised of Iranians and Jews of Christian and Jewish faiths. Many lost their families to mobs who took them from their from homes during the cover of darkness and executed them in the streets during the Iranian Revolution and the genocide of the Jews. To many residents, this is not merely an intrus- intrusion of their peace. Rather, it is a terrifying reminder of their past. So hearkening back to literally the, the Holocaust and, and the pogroms of uh, Kristallnacht and, and, uh, and the lead up to World War II, 
as reason to target for prosecution black protesters against police violence. Like as I said, this stood out to me at the time. Revisiting it now, knowing that the police department in Beverly Hills also has been waging uh, concurrently a a program to harass black people out of the city. This is I, it's hard for me to characterize this in another way other than um, that it is a modern sundown town. Yeah. Basically, yeah. the the enforcement of of curfew violations to push black people out and to claim that black people are victimizing. Uh, intentionally refugees from Iran or or Jewish uh, refugees from Europe during the time of the Holocaust um, and then using the, the language of safe streets to actually arrest and remove from site black visitors to Beverly Hills is uh, is really trouble uh, troubling to me. And I think that it is something that we need to be talking about a lot more in this city. And just to go back to something that we did talk about a lot when the scooters showed up was that there was this geofenced um, line around Beverly Hills. They, I, they were, I think, the first city to say you cannot, it wasn't that you couldn't even park a scooter there. It was that you weren't allowed to drive them or operate them through the city limits. Like it was, it, this was their policy, not enforceable probably in any way. Um, but now we see it was about more than complaining about street clutter. If you, you might say that it's very, yeah. it's very purposeful and very specific. Um, and it was enforceable. It seems like, it seems like they were able to do exactly what they intended with that policy. You, you cross the, the border from West Hollywood into, into Beverly Hills and the bike and you just get tackled. <laughs> well, I, you know, I rode a, I rode a scooter through Beverly Hills one time, and I was ready. I was like, "You ready for what's going to happen to me? You ready to of, mix of course, it up? Of course, nothing is going yeah, to happen nothing. to me. But it is very. I mean, these things you you try to say that they're just they're not related. But what's an easy way to you know try to get get people um, to to crack down to pretend you're cracking down on someone? Of course, it would be if they're not in a vehicle, and that's a very easy way to do it. Or jaywalking, or whatever. Jaywalking else. is that another was, great example. A... Although Beverly Hills did take off all their beg buttons during this time oh. and has. Um, probably one of the best places to cross the street right now. So no more, no more. Just don't go outside the line. Yeah. That was, that was one of the things here and here. Yeah, it was, right. it was among the reasons people were detained and arrested was for being just outside the crosswalk lines. Oh, well. so. I would, I would say straight <laughs> more at, at this point, straightforwardly, you know, the, the legacy of last year's protests and uprisings is still being determined, but one of the things that we can say now pretty straightforwardly is that the experience of 2020 has led Beverly Hills to crack down on being visibly black in their city. And um, and that is uh, quite a thing to have to say in 2021, but I, I do fully believe that to be true. We're going to kick it over to Matt now, who is going to respond to this week's listener question. This one is about street sweeping take a listen. Hi there. My name is Kelsey. My question is about street sweeping, street cleaning. Um, I live in East Hollywood where it's very um, scarce to find parking um, and we have street sweeping twice a week, which causes it to be even more frustrating and painful. I'd love to hear from you um, any of the history of this. Has there been any attempts at removing this um, and making it easier 
for citizens of the neighborhood to live. But anyway, street sweeping, street cleaning. Um, specifically, I live in East Hollywood, but um, I'd love to hear kind of the history of it in the city overall. Thank you so much. Okay, so to answer this, I fired up the web browser and started poking in those key terms, street sweeping and parking. And what I found was that the existing street sweeping signs in the city of L.A., they trace their roots back to the 1960s and probably specifically 1964. Now, the problem of leaves and dirt and trash and yard clippings and whatever else accumulating on the street is a problem as old as cities themselves. For L.A., the problem became particularly acute as more people acquired cars, especially in the big, dense apartment neighborhoods that were built after World War II. Litter was a big topic by the early 1960s. At one point, there was even an outdoor ad campaign by the city's Street Services Bureau imploring Angelinos to listen to Harvey O'Hare, who was the litter-talking bunny. Harvey didn't quite do the trick, but what did were a series of pilot programs to try and figure out how to get people to move their cars when the sweeper came. Until then, street sweeping was infrequent and would rely on notice provided, sometimes weeks in advance. By 1964, though, the city had figured out that the permanent red and white signs with a regular no parking time worked the best. And over the next few years, they began rolling out the signs in many of the most dense neighborhoods like Hollywood, Wilshire, West L.A., and Venice. Which today, those neighborhoods and Koreatown, East Hollywood, as well as Van Nuys, North Hollywood, and Boyle Heights, those are the places where most street sweeping tickets are handed out. Now, as you probably know, it's a $73 fine if you don't move your car when you're supposed to. In 2015, the LA Times reported that street sweeping tickets made up about $50 million in revenue for the city of Los Angeles. But that $50 million, well, it comes from less than half of LA's streets because more than half don't actually have regular street sweeping. And those less than half of LA streets that do have street sweeping, for the most part, they're poorer blocks than those that don't have regular sweeps. So that's probably what feels off to you. Because coordinating when and where to park the car if you don't have off-street parking can take a lot of time. And in many neighborhoods, it's just time that a lot of people don't have. But the good news is that right now, LA is not actually sweeping or ticketing cars every week. Right now, it's currently every other week to save the city money. In the show notes is a link to a city web page where you can figure out exactly when any street is actually going to be swept. It's going to be something like the first and third Monday of every month, not every single Monday. And yes, if there's a fifth Monday, there's not going to be sweeping then either. You can put in an email address and an actual address to get email notifications of when a street near you is going to be swept. You can also use a map to click or tap on any street to see what the schedule is. Just a warning, though, the map is easier to use on a computer than a phone. But no warning if you leave your car on the street during the off week. You won't get a ticket. Thanks for listening. And if you have a question you want us to try and answer, leave us a voicemail at 323-250-2106. Thank you so much, Matt, for that explanation. Thank you, Kelsey, for calling our listener question number. And we hope that everyone takes the time to send us the things that you want to know about Los Angeles. We are going to get into our big story for the week, 
which is all about the First Amendment. We've been talking throughout today about violations of uh, constitutional civil rights. And in Los Angeles, in the city of Los Angeles, there has been an emergent battleground around the First Amendment rights to speech, protest, and assembly. Let's, uh, let's talk about what's going on here. I think that it's really useful to, uh, to begin this with a contextualization that we have a continued presence of anti-vax protests going on in and around the city of Los Angeles. Um, these have been uh, these gatherings have been going on in response to planned restrictions on the activities of people who refuse to get vaccinated for political reasons uh, here locally. And in Santa Monica last week, uh, last Sunday, there was a, uh, a pack the pier effort where a, a group of people got together in order to castigate the Los Angeles City Council for uh, for the planned anti-vax ban and on going into uh, indoor vaccine mandate in the, certain yeah, public right. indoor places. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so we had a. Uh, a large anti-vaxxer gathering. The rhetoric got pretty heated, including, uh, you know, claims by the one of the leaders of that movement that um, the anti-vaxxers were ready to start a civil war. Uh, the the addresses of council members were uh, distributed publicly, and 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 threats of violence were made. So, in Los Angeles City Council this week, there was some discussion about how to respond to the uh, the anti-vax protest. Matt, what exactly was on the table in council? Well, we didn't know it was on the table until later on in the meeting when council president Nuri Martinez invoked a special rule that basically lets the council vote on an item uh, that was not previously on the agenda. But specifically what it was, was uh, a proposal to outlaw protests uh, within 300 feet of a targets, that's the word from the motion, of a targets personal residence, specifically because Council President Martinez, after on, on I believe it was Sunday evening, people showed up at her house uh, in, in the night and in the evening uh, and and performed harassment directly at her at her private residence on on like the the on the driveway. And well, I just want to play a little bit of sound from Council President Martinez explaining why the decision was made to propose a 300 foot ban. I mean, these, these types of protests, I think, are something that we've got to be very, very careful with. And I'm sorry, members, I just don't have another way to address this. And I do want to recognize that some of us who ran for office to try to find solutions to the ongoing issues in our neighborhoods did not sign up for this. We did not sign up for people to threaten us online, for people to show up at our homes, for people to threaten our children. We did not sign up for that. Okay, so there's two things that I wanted to kind of highlight from what Council President Martinez just said there, which is one, that as a public official, as one of the most powerful elected, non-federal elected officials in the entire country, uh, given how representation works in the Los Angeles area and LA City Council, is that public officials are absolutely... um, I, I don't understand why you would think that you're not up for public criticism when you're mm-hmm. an enormously powerful, influential, elected political leader. Um, I'd say, like, no, people probably shouldn't be... Sh- like, I can get why somebody shouting direct threats on your personal property is a um, concern, 
But then I guess that would go to the other thing, which is I when she says that I don't know what else to do, there's plenty of things that can be done other than creating a 300-foot buffer zone around another, a person's house, which to the point, uh, there's already a 100-foot buffer zone right. around people's houses as is. Um, and if somebody's actually on your property um, inciting violence, well, then that's a there's a long list of like uh, theoretical prosecutions that that person could be charged with, which goes to the other thing is that, okay, well, if you have a um, police department that will enforce the law, including not just against left-wing protesters, but also right-wing protesters, as is the case, then like somebody protesting and inciting violence on your personal property is, it's, you don't need a ban. You can, that's a trespassing charge. And there's lots of other ways to do that, but that also requires a functional law enforcement apparatus that's not. Council President Martinez said uh, she didn't have an, another option for how to handle this, which is, which is interesting because it does seem um, it doesn't seem like this directly gets at the root of the problem. If indeed the root of the problem is uh, a legitimate interest in protecting, uh, for example, the family members of elected officials from threats of violence or actual violence. A, a 100-foot buffer zone would accomplish that feat as easily as a 300-foot buffer zone. And as we've mentioned, uh, that actually is already on the books. The fact of the matter is this 300-foot buffer zone um, it does nothing in terms of, uh, as far as I can tell, it does nothing particular to illegitimate protests. It seems to be a blanket curtailment of protest rights in general, particularly for um, for peaceful protests, again, in the interest of what Nuri Martinez says is something that she did not sign up for. I mean, it's the sort of thing where it's like, yes, you are a public official. You are a, um, a, a valid... Uh, People can be mean to you. And that's kind of, I think... I think that's where they don't agree. I think that yeah. is really, they are, they do not think that you should be mean. And the conflating of the group of people who are protesting and the group of people who are, for example, disrupting the vaccine clinics, also appearing outside of people's homes. Um, also, some of them going to the Capitol to mount an insurrection. And right. the fact that they can't easily tell the difference between those people, or maybe they don't want to. They don't want where's to. Where's the yeah. 300 feet around the vaccination clinic um, where they said they were going to have a special pen where you could like go in and protest safely and be protected for your First Amendment rights? Where was the 300 feet around the Century City Mall when the anti-maskers were going there every weekend right. um, during the height of the surge and like spitting in retail workers' faces? I mean, we've asked to be protected from these people, these very particular people who have video of them and we know their names and some of them are under investigation, but for some reason, like we're not okay to be protected against, like only they are. And that's the thing is like, I mean, again, it's like there is a distinction that needs to be drawn between and, and like when, when it comes to constitutionally protected activities, the, the, uh, you would imagine it is incumbent upon uh, political actors like Council President Martinez and Council Member O'Farrell, who co-authored this motion with her office, uh, to be more, not less, precise in what they do, because um, because you would imagine that you have an interest as a, a democratically elected leader in protecting constitutional rights, and yet we see time and time again this sort of blunt 
this blunt action to curtail these these actions. When you have a when you have speech, when you have protest, when you have constitutionally protected actions, there's a line between saying things that are mean to somebody who is holding public office or even saying mean things to somebody who is uh, just on the street and doing things that would otherwise be illegal. For example, assault, spitting in someone's face uh, at their place of employment, that is assault. Or in the in the case of Nuri Martinez, who later went on Twitter and posted a video, video from her ring doorbell of uh, some of these same anti-vaxxers on her property recording the contents or using uh, cameras to record the contents of her car. Um, these are things that are already against the law, that type of intimidation, trespassing, those sorts of things. Um, that there can be enforcement against that and putting up an imaginary 300-foot line and, and lumping them in with uh, legitimate protesters does nothing to achieve these means. But what Nuri Martinez has been uh, subject to is protests outside of her home, not just from uh, right-wing protesters, but like many other council members, including Paul Krikorian, uh, including uh, who's the council member of the second district, Mitchell Farrell, council member of the 13th district. The, there have been protests outside a lot of residences for council members and uh, in large part, they have been peaceful protests. Have they been noisy? Certainly, but um, but that is still constitutionally protected activity. And now basically what the city council is doing is cracking down on protests of all stripes, uh, but the vast majority of what they're getting is peaceful protests. I think I would bristle a little bit with just the use of like the, the language legitimate versus illegitimate protest. Sure. Because what it's not that, it's a distinction between protest, a constitutionally protected activity, and like not that violence and right. and yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and stuff that yeah. is yeah absolutely stuff right. that is defined clearly legally in in you know court but there's court precedent that will say a court will say well we have a legal test to determine whether or not it was protest or violence and those are those are things that are uh, there there are lines in the proverbial sand that can be arbitrated uh, should uh, somebody be prosecuted which is actually something that Councilmember Mike Bonin brought up is saying. Well, why why isn't a uh, the gentleman in Santa Monica who's saying let's cause civil war and bring guns everywhere and here are the addresses and let's go there now? Uh, is that inciting violence? That was the question that Mike Bonin asked. Dakota Smith, LA Times reporter uh, who covers Mayor Garcetti and LA City Hall, went and took that very same question to the Los Angeles Police Department, which responded to her. Again, they're not the prosecuting authority here, but they said, "Well, that's that's free speech. Right. That going and showing here here are the addresses of where the elected officials are, and oh, by the way, we should uh, maybe go there, maybe even right now." Uh, is, according to the police department, constitutionally protected free speech, which is, again, they're not the prosecuting office, but like I think that's it's not something that you can ignore in, in the discussion of this entire thing. And also, I think, is an important distinction between uh, like protest and violence, which is kind of, which is a like, it's not legitimate versus illegitimate because that's using language, I think, that, um, that, that, that the right will use quite a lot. I see it uh, even just in terms of like how we're discussing um, stuff like, 
I, I think I, I always worry when like discussions get dismissed as illegitimate discussions. Sure, yeah, um, I mean, but I think, yeah, I which I know isn't what you meant, but I just I wanted to draw a distinction between like protest is constitutionally protected. There's no illegitimate protest, constitutionally but there protected is, is, but the, there yeah. is, um, there is a point at which conduct becomes unconstitutional. We have, um, I mean, in the same discussion, you know, Nuri Martinez has been uh, the target of vandalism at, at her home. She brought that up again. She, but in in this discussion, she, she's using these examples of what's happening locally and conflating them with things that have happened nationally, particularly the attempted abduction of Governor Whitmer of Michigan uh, and the insurrection in D.C. this year, of course. Um, but it's it's to me it it strains credulity that you would actually use an ordinance like that is uh, seeking to be authored here by the the city attorney in Los Angeles uh, and justify it by saying uh, if you have a protest action adjacent to a public official's home, it might somehow generate a premeditated abduction attempt or it might turn into a, an attempt to seize the home of uh, an elected official. These are, um, these are things that are really credulity straining and don't, to my mind anyway, bolster the arguments that are, uh, that are being made publicly. It seems like it is attempting to conflate a lot of different types of, of protest, collapse a lot of different types of protest um, and, and probably to do so in order to, uh, as I said, the bulk of what protest actions there are in the city are coming not from the right, but from the left, at least outside of city council members' uh, houses to this point in time, heretofore. That may not continue to be the case in the future, but it does seem like there is an attempt to, uh, to say that the left, the left protests and the right protests are the same, there's equal propensity for violence and we're going to wipe all of them off of the board with one stroke, even though there's not really, in my mind, a clear demonstration of the fact that, uh, that these fears of uh, abduction or, or other violence are founded in such a way that you would just eliminate an entire class of protest. They try to speak directly to the people that they think on Twitter who are mean to them. And Paul Gregorian just had this amazing, um, you know, take my advice and and don't get worked up about this Twitter mob or whatever, um, which I really would like to play. When gallows are set up in the shadow of the Capitol building, when the governor of Michigan literally is the target of a kidnapping plot, we have essentially um, abandoned any pretense of behaving as a democratic society anymore. So there will be people, I'm sure it's happening right now, uh, there will be in social media, there will be people who will be saying, how can the council interfere with our democratic rights and why are they doing this? They just don't want to hear protesters. And That's all just rubbish. That is just nonsense. So save the strain on your thumbs and don't even bother with that stupid storyline that you're going to be putting out there. Because the truth is what we're trying to address here is the politics of the bully. 
so what he's doing is he gives this whole, same with uh, Martinez, he gives this whole list of examples of the abduction of governors and gallows being set up in front of the Capitol and attacks on law enforcement. And then he switches to make it about people mm-hmm. on Twitter, don't, don't be mad that we're telling you mm-hmm. you're not allowed to protest in front of our house anymore. I mean, we have been asking for them to protect protesters who are not the capital insurrectionists. We know this. We have been asking them for months at these protests. Hey, guess what? People are getting stabbed. People are getting beaten. People are getting harassed online. Criminal Um, acts are being committed. Yeah. And we've asked for protection. And now you're going to like wag your finger at me and tell me to save my thumb. And and how dare I say that, I, you know, how dare I get mad about you not protecting the people who are out there trying to fix this city? Yeah. I mean, if you listen to Drake, you know that Trigger fingers turn into Twitter fingers. <laughs> Twitter Twitter fingers don't so easily turn back into trigger fingers. I I don't know. Paul Kerkorian. There it seems like to me the the attempt that's being made here is to capitalize on a very visible, very extreme right wing group that is now targeting city council. Um, and use it to galvanize the public at large behind what to me cannot be uh, construed as anything other than an attempt to wave away a lot more protests as dangerous to the council members themselves. And so there's like a lot of, you'll hear, you know, you'll hear Paul Krikorian uh, vocally getting heated as he's discussing this. You'll hear Nuri Martinez doing the same. She's been, um, she has been giving comments of this variety for quite some time, but it is, in my mind, uh, a way to get the public paying attention to a a minor uh, contingent among the subset of people who are protesting council actions and to say no reasonable person would expect that we should have to put up with protesters of this variety. Yeah. And just as a few quick updates, and then we'll say how the vote went, but... um, there was a really uh, incredible report in The Guardian that came out this week. Uh, Lois Beckett, who's been reporting on a lot on the ground, a lot of these um, protests about just the attacks um, on media and how LAPD has not done anything about it. And specifically, um, LAPD has also roughed up some reporters during these the same protests. So there is really like a concerted talk about who's being protected. Um, there's a concerted effort to go after the journalists who are covering these. We've talked about this um, many times. And then there was an interesting development in the Anivax um, protest that happened at City Hall in front of LAPD headquarters the other day. Um, They did actually take someone into custody for stabbing a a protester. Um, And we and we don't know, I mean, why all of a sudden they took action because it seemed like they, or we can't find them. We don't know who it is. There was all this like... (laughs) There was actually a comment made that uh, to the, to someone on site at the protest that they didn't think that they would find or We'll never be able to find them. Everybody's like, here's 10 videos of this With all that live stream. Yeah. Who would ever guess? So the vote happens. There's only one vote against it. Is that correct? Yeah. And... It was Nithya Raman who basically just said, 
you know, there are other ways to protect people. Who's, like who's just actually like said, said uh, enforce what's already on the books exactly, first and, yeah. see if, and see if that accomplishes the same, exactly. uh, see if that accomplishes the, the desired end result. It's worth noting here that this is now the second time in recent months that we've seen this procedural mechanism used to essentially force counsel to craft uh, to craft new ordinance language on the fly. Joe Buscaino famously did this with, or infamously, depending on where you stand, did this uh, for 41.18, which is the sit-lie sleep ban on city uh, sidewalks, which is, of course, about to go back into enforcement. Um, but now, and at the time, it was, it was actually much remarked upon that it was a, a rarely used procedural mechanism within the council to bypass the committee process and and bring something to a full council vote immediately. Now we're seeing that happen again, were it not for Nithya Raman's vote uh, against, by virtue of, of getting unanimous, unanimous approval, that would have been the order of council immediately that session. So that's it for us this week. We want to thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with our episode 191. Additionally, this week, you probably noticed we have a new TMZ episode in your main feed. That's where they're going to be living from now on. This week's episode was with Carolina Miranda from the LA Times and Allison Herman from The Ringer. And it is about Brian De Palma's 1984 thriller, Body Double. If you are interested in supporting us and helping us keep this show and all of our other content going, please do check out patreon.com slash LA podcast. And we will talk to you next week. And tell a friend about LA Podcast. Tell two friends. Three and vote uh, five stars in Apple Podcasts. And vote no on the recall. Okay, thanks, guys. We'll be back next week. Bye.